Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week, we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello and welcome to What's Your Beef? I'm Jane Cudahy. In this episode, we are chatting with Terry Nolan. If you're in the cattle game in Australia, particularly Queensland, it's highly likely you've heard of Nolan Meats. The family-owned processing plant is based in Gympie and the company has a long-standing reputation for innovation and quality. Hi, Terry. Hi, Jane. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. There's a lot to cover in our chat. I'm a bit worried about fitting it in our time frame, but I guess I want to start at the very beginning. Um, you are in partnership with your brothers. It's a family business. How did the business start? How did Where did it all begin for Nolans? Oh, crikey, Jane, that goes back a long way. Um, and if we could start at the very beginning, um, my father um, left school after, you know, grew up through the Depression years, left school, had to go and find a job somewhere, and I think he went um, carrying bananas and Dad's not a big man, but he said some of the bunches of bananas were as big as him, and he was walking up and down very steep uh, terrain in the uh, in the Mary Valley area. So where Valley. are these bananas? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Dad said, I need to find an occupation on level ground. I can't lump these bananas as big as me up and down the hills. And uh, so he, he, he moved on from there, and eventually he took up a uh, apprenticeship in a butcher shop in Gimpy what they call Apollonian Vale, and it was um, there in about 1945 that he started his apprenticeship. He progressed through the ranks and uh, achieved his trade, and then he um, went and worked for a number of butchers around town. Uh, my father's uh, 91, and he, oh, he'll be 91 this year, and um, he uh, established a reputation as being a fairly good, what they'd say, a counter-butcher. He did always say he was a jack of all trades and master of none, but um, he learned to welcome people by their name and know what the customer wanted when they came in. And if Mrs. Jones came in, that little question of how were those lamb chops last week, Mrs. Uh, Jones, or how was that um, topside? Did that cook up nice on Saturday night? And just that little bit of rapport seemed to uh, endear himself with the customers. So he was sought after as a, as a good counter butcher, I might say. Um, and then in um, February 1958, he decided to branch out into business by himself. And um, he always tells the story how he couldn't get money from a bank, big four banks back in the day, and um, he had not enough collateral to start off. And um, he took on some high risk, I guess you say, private funding. So a private investor backed him through a local law firm. And um, that started Pat Nolan Butchery in existence. He grew the trade to where he had about three butcher shops, all here in Gympie. And um, being an ambitious young guy, in about 1964, uh, late 63, 64, he decided to buy a slaughterhouse that was um, on the eastern outskirts of Gympie, East Deep Creek Road. He thought that um, he saw the early signs of innovation. If I could start to capture a supply chain, process my own beef, sell my own beef, there might be a future in this. And it's sort of grown from there. And um, progressively, three sons joined the business. The uh, the processing became our focus. We're all a bit keener on the um, on the processing. Perhaps none of us had the interpersonal skills of that to be a good counter butcher. And uh, so we focused on processing. 
And by just through natural attrition, we closed the shops uh, and, oh, we didn't close, we sold them to people. Focused wholly and solely from the mid-90s into building a uh, first-class processing facility. And it really is first-class. It's got a terrific reputation. So you've seen, I just wanted to talk briefly about the changes in that time frame because that's that's a long-standing um, involvement in the butcher, but that processing side of things. So, well, it's interesting. We we heard a bit. We heard the thing about deregulation is a bad thing. If you, and it depends which side of the fence you sit on. Um, because we were established in Gympie, it wasn't a declared regional meat area. To our north, we had the Mirabra regional meat area. To our south, we had the Sunshine Coast regional meat area. We had the Metropolitan Regional Meat Area in Brisbane. We had to pay what you call a Section 20 approval just to deliver our meat down to Kuroi. Kuroi's only half an hour's drive south for us. Mm. But we'd pay the government $20,000 a year to cross a, a major line on, on a map, similar to an electoral sort of boundary. Goodness. And, and, if, and if we wanted to go north to Mirabra, we'd then have to pay another $20,000 um, Section 20 approval to go north. So we were a bit annoyed about this. We wanted to grow the business. And we couldn't um, sustain our business, giving our opposition in each area that sort of a start. And, and, and that money, of course, just goes to consolidated revenue. And uh, we protested long and hard. And it was um, about the time of huge change in Queensland. Everyone would remember Cannon Hill, the old Metropolitan Regional yep. Laboratory, or the Toowoomba Regional Laboratory, mm-hmm. uh, even Bundaberg Regional Laboratory. And they were sort of run by state authorities not casting any aspersions over them. History has proven that private enterprise runs abattoirs better than councils, better than governments, even better than some cooperatives in some st- in some cases. Very few cooperative abattoirs left in Australia. I think there might be one in New South Wales. So it, it's a um, an industry that's um, volatile. Um, you've got to work hard in the good times. You've got to put a bit away for the bad times, very much like farming. And... Um, I'm not sure that councils or governments do that as well as private family businesses, and I think it's a, a bit of a correlation to the ethic um, of the family farm where you battle through the tough times, hopefully have a good year every couple of years and you can, you can balance it out. So you've had some pretty big hurdles on a number of fronts then when you were setting this up. Absolutely. And, and we were successful in encouraging the, the government to deregulate. I mean, you talk about deregulation in dairy and some say it ruined the industry. Bigger regulation actually made our meat industry for us, and uh, so we're, we're um, all for free trade and competing on your merits. We don't like artificial boundaries. We don't like artificial subsidies, mm. and uh, we like to, to, to see free trade wherever we can. So yeah, we've had some hurdles. If I could say something about my father, because I I do think the family spirit's important to the beef industry in Australia, and Dad's always encouraged us to be innovative. A lot of people listening to your podcast, Jane, wouldn't realise that we had the first purebred Charolais calf born in Australia, born on the side of this abattoir. Wow. Dad and a uh, Bill Bishop, a local livestock agent, and Trevor Cotty. Trevor used to have the Cotty's Cordials in Toowoomba. What's some big names there, Terry. Yeah, they, they, well, the three of them went to New Zealand in 1967 and imported some live cattle, and the very first purebred Charolais was born on our property. Um, of course, there's people who had um, artificially inseminated cattle prior to and about the same time. Um, so, but I know certainly those three, Bill Bishop's a bit of a legend in the auctioneering um, game. 
livestock agency game. Mm-hmm. And Trevor Coddy was a little ex- a legend in the uh, food and uh, drinks game, and I hope Pat Nolan is a bit of a legend in the in the process. And so, but he, the point I'm making: do something innovative, do something that no one else has, uh, hasn't done. Try and take the try and be an early entrant into market. And so we've done that. And as the years have progressed on, even in the sort of early 90s, we had computerized controlled rooms. And I can remember some of the big operators coming to see our refrigeration and wanting to know how you have a computerized cold room. I should say that my brother Tony, um, he's an electrical engineer by trade, and we call him our technical consultant. He's probably he's the only tertiary educated brother in the family. And uh, whilst uh, Michael and I don't mind doing the hard work and and, um, and that sort of thing, Tony brings a real technical skill to the industry. There's always one. You always need that yeah. one. Yep, and then you spend so much need time to look after the, the people and the processing and the construction and the and, and the maintenance of the, of the plant. So yeah, we're we're a good fit as brothers, and um, sort of once again, I don't know whether it was good luck or, or foresight that Dad um, planned that or whether it just happened. But uh, yeah, we've done quite a few innovative things, and as I say, early entry into computerisation of refrigeration controls. We actually did a bit of a project. Um, exporting into not top-tier countries like Japan and Korea and USA, but um, we were one of the first companies in Australia to export into uh, Indonesia under what they call a Tier 1 arrangement. And that was something where you use your state-registered meat inspectors um, and then receive certification from the federal government. So we sort of pioneered that with um, a couple of abattoirs out of Victoria. That's a bit different. And then a bit later, in 2006, we did a trial and we became the first meat processing establishment on the globe to export product to the USA with company-employed but department-controlling staff. So where our company-trained meat inspectors um, inspected the product, they took their direction, if you like, that was seconded to the department. So we weren't allowed to give them any instructions that were purely answerable to our part of the on plant pet. So that was a bit of a milestone where we you know, created another opportunity for Australian exports and that model's been replicated commonly throughout the industry now. So you, you've rattled through quite a few innovations and, and, you know, opportunities there, but how hard is it to work out exactly which opportunity to follow through on? You know, there's any number of, you know, I'm sure brainstorms and ideas and that sort of thing. How do you know what to follow through on and, and you know, is it a bit of a trial and error kind of process or can you, you know, you, you all sound like you, you've got a fair bit of skin in the game? Jane, I think the um, real message there is to have more failures than successes. <laughs> um, I, I think Einstein often said he was the greatest failure. A lot of his attempts never, never paid any dividends but then a few of his other things, you know, change the, the thinking for physics and, and science in the world. Um, we're a bit fortunate, as I say, Michael, who's a butcher by trade, is a self-taught boilermaker engineer, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony's an electrical engineer and good on the finance and good on the computer program and all that sort of stuff. I've had a bit of a liking for the livestock and looked after the, the livestock and the purchase and, the, and then the people as well as the marketing. The marketing guys report to me a little bit. And um, so we never move forward unless we have consensus of opinion. It's no goody for two brothers 
to gang up against the third brother. So if one says, I'm out of here, then we don't do the project. We've all got to be full buy-in for the project to move forward. So there's no voting. It's consensus or it's not on. Well, that's terrific communication just in, you know, siblings, let alone business partners as well. Yeah. And that must have been a really evolving process too, working out three brothers and a father in a business. Yes. No, no, it, it's been good. And, 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 and we're excited by the industry. We think there's a lot of opportunity there. And um, we want to keep moving forward. And, you know, um, even before things like NLIS, which is a common mandatory thing around the country today. But it wasn't always. It was it was such no. a debacle when it first was introduced. Yeah. Very controversial. In the mid-90s, we did some trials with NIS buttons in the feedlot, different sorts of buttons, and you'd walk through the feedlot and you'd see a deer, you know, scratching his ear with his hind foot, and you'd see his toes connect onto the button, and bits of the buttons would fly to either end of the pen, if you like, and he pulled it out with his back toe. And um, just little things like that, and then... And we realise the um, the value of single point data entry. You have people calling out ear tag numbers or scribing numbers, and I think people come to work to do the the right thing for you. They don't deliberately do the wrong thing, but it was amazing how many errors we had just in simple transcription of numbers and fix that numbers. And and you get cranky. Why can't you write the number down correctly? But they were trying to write it down correctly. They're just the volume of of handwritten numbers made it terribly hard for, for the, to analyse the data and then you get computer screens at the, at the induction box and you, and then you strike wrong numbers. So mm. just the fact that you could scan a radio frequency tag and put it in the system once and, and know its history, it was a marvellous thing. And uh, the uh, unfortunately, the industry was very slow to adopt. And I have this view that it probably takes 15 years from a good concept to become a, um, a recognisable adaptation for industry. Do you think people are using it to its full potential at the moment as a management no. and no, as a management tool as much as anything else? And, and that's right. I mean, you know, we have the COVID issues here and even things like a, um, a handwritten NVD. No criticism on anyone, but can you imagine a, a, a hot, sweaty truck driver or a farmer who's got this, who doesn't like paperwork at the best of times He's got this crumpled up NBD folder up in his top pocket and all sweaty and half wet when it comes to you. Delicious. He gets out and sits it in, in, in the, uh, on the ramp under a rock or something where he loads the truck. And then he checks it off and signs it and then they pass it on. It gets into our admin building and we've got a bundle of 100 NBDs with all spots of cow manure and things over them and you can't read some and some aren't accurate. You know, and you think, gee, where's the COVID risk here? Does the coronavirus live on this paper? Am I asking my staff to you know, finger through each of those documents and re-enter the data? Wouldn't it be great if that was done on a, on a phone or something that ran side and then loaded up into the system and we download an XML file and have all that material and no one's got to enter anything. You know, the person who owns the data at the start enters and we accept their declaration. Things like that, I, I hope we embrace innovation in those areas. Well, you've touched on COVID and I was going to mention that a little bit later, but you've, you've brought it up, so we'll, we'll go forward with it. But, you know, that has been, had such a big impact on the world and, and Australia as well. What has, you've mentioned one of the, you know, I guess an, an innovation that could possibly come out of it from a processing side. What else has it affected in your, in your business and in your everyday? 
that's a good question. When your business is all you have, and that's true in our case, we don't have a, a flash house at the seaside event to retire. All our in earnings are invested back into the business. You can protect your business like your family home. You protect your staff like your own family. And even before the COVID was sort of announced in Australia, I think it was way back on the 10th of February, we stopped overseas visitors. Um, we regularly get clients from Korea and Japan and all over the world and, and valuable clients that come and visit two or three times a year. It was very hard for us to say, sorry, we're not taking any visitors. They, and they'd say, but there's no restriction on travel. But no, common sense would tell you this is a people issue and only people can solve it. We need to be proactive in this and our companies we have a ban on visitors to Skype. So even if you come to Australia to visit your other clients, I'm sorry you can't come here. We don't want to infect our staff. That was they were hard those first two weeks of COVID. And I just can't recall the dates now, but it was about the middle of March, I think, Prime Minister Morrison got on TV. He announced the lockdown. In early March, the first week of March, we'd set up a monitoring tent. It's just a um, a hocker, you know, canvas yep. marquee, mm-hmm. and as people walk on site, they've got to fill out a declaration. Have you been in a group of more than ten people? And have you done this? Have you done that? Have you, have you, um, you know, anyone who's had COVID? Have you been overseas? We interrogated all our staff, with, and some thought it was quite offensive. And then you move along a bit. Someone stands there with a thermometer, takes your temperature on your forehead. You're just one of those, um, you know, light thermometers. Yep. Um, and uh, we record that. And, and anyone who got above thirty-seven point eight. They were sort of come back and do another temperature, something else. And you find out that some people rode a push bike to work and it was quite hot. And some people came in an air-conditioned car. So you, cool, you set up you set up your own um, COVID app really before it became before it became an yeah. idea really. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say an app, but we, we yeah, but, we sort but, of set up anyway. <laughs> Yes, your own traceability, yes. your own traceability. But I guess you know you yes. have a big staff. You've got your your in food production. That's that's safeguarding your business um, at its prime. Correct, Jane. And, and and as I say, we operated on the family principle. If it's not good for your family, it's not good for the business. And uh, a few people objected, or oh, they didn't want their temperature taken. And then it's painless. Mm. And then within a couple of days, it probably took until the the full lockdown. People say, "Gee, I'm glad you guys started early." Well, you they've still got jobs, don't they? <laughs> the they've got the jobs. None, none of their family have been infected. Um, you know, we've had to. I know one night there, a lot of our team went to a big um, uh, nightclub party for one of the guys. We suspended all those people. It was very hard to operate that day without that staff, but we had to make a stand. No, we're serious about this. We suspended them for four days, and people talk this 14 days lockdown. They probably weren't in any risk, but. Our best advice is that you see symptoms after three to seven days. So we thought we'll suspend them for four days. We're sort of learning as, as you go, if you like. And um, we suspended them for four days. They all came back to work. Not one of them registered a high temperature. Not one of them had a cough. Um, we let them all back on site. But sent a very strong message that we were serious about um, bending the curve or flattening the curve, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, we've learned a lot about that. One of the biggest issues we had and I've got to be careful how I say this. Some of our 
Department of Ag staff wanted to come on board, and they didn't want to be tested with government officials you can't test us. And we said, sorry, not on site. So we had a little bit of issue there, and um, I sought the minister directly for intervention, which was resolved, and, and, and they've been very cooperative since. In another situation, it was a bit more difficult. He ranked to ask how we're going, and um, we said the only issue we have now is that we can't social distance while we have lunch. In our business, we rotate all our breaks. So we have in groups of seven or eight self-managed team environment, and seven go to lunch, and then seven fill in for them. Another seven come out, and another seven go back. So you've got this constant rotation for lunch breaks. It takes about four hours to get through a lunch break, mm-hmm. half hour each. And um, But that happens everywhere, except on our slaughter floor. On our slaughter floor, there's a government inspector on the chain, and he's got to have his half hour break, so the chain's got to stop. So all of a sudden, we're sending 60 people to a canteen together, 60 people to a lunchroom together. Impossible to practice social distancing. And I said, the minister, we've got to stop. He said, Terry, you implement it, and I'll work with our department. It'll be right. To his credit, I mean, David Little Proud has been wonderful through the um, COVID response, and um, we, we, we implemented it, and it's gone amazingly well. But we've seen side benefits from it, uh, Jane. Yeah. We've seen our production speeds increase slightly because you're not running the chain off and starting up and then ramping down and ramping up. You've had a continuous flow. We've seen hygiene benefits because the guys are happier. Um, we've seen um, less cuts in hides. We've seen better boning practices with hot zone chins out. We've seen that has been an improvement. That's and most amazing. People are going home earlier. That two half-hour breaks, which were our smoke breaks, that's now consumed in the middle of the day Whereas it used to be added at the end of the day. So, you know, we, we're a bit atypical. We start at 10 o'clock in the morning and, and work through to late at night. And, uh, but people weren't getting home from 9 at night sometimes. Now you find they're getting home at 7 30. So there's been no real losers. The product improvement, morale improvement, quality improvement, um, productivity. So I hope that as we go forward, we can embrace some of these better work practices, which have really stemmed from, um, Flattening the curve, if I can say it that way, from the from from practicing social distancing, it yeah, we've learned a lot, and and uh, we've been well supported by our department, we've been well supported by the minister, and I think we've been well supported by the industry council, the, the industry council, where we tell AMIC what we're doing, other plants tell them what we're doing, and AMIC did a good job building a bit of a dossier of best practice, if you like, to combat COVID. So I think it's a bit of a there's a, what do they say, every cloud has a silver lining. Yeah, I think you found, you found a few there, I think. I think also the other side of this, and you sort of touched on it before when you were mentioning your overseas visitors, processing, especially when you're exporting, comes down to building those relationships with your um, consumers and customers. And you mentioned, you know, how hard it was to stop your visitors. We've seen mm. some plants be barred from China since the outbreak. What how important are those relationships? And on, you know, we take for granted, I guess, we do have, you know, state and federal departments that negotiate these contracts, but how much of it does come down to a processor personal um, relationships? A lot, Jane. As I say, we're getting bigger. We never want to lose our family values and family roots. In families, it's relationships that make it cling together. With our customers, it's relationships that make it cling together. Strangely enough, some of those customers who were
complaint of it, and they've even said to us, gee, we're glad you did that. The way it's swept the world, um, we're glad we weren't stranded in Australia. We're glad we didn't, you know, experience COVID. So thanks very much. So sometimes I think you've got to make the tough calls, as, as, as difficult it might be at the time, as long as you've got a longer, longer-term objective that you think you're doing good somewhere. And, and um, let's face it, where people say we go to work to, um, to make money, a lot of us go to work to leave a legacy for a future generation or to you know, make the world a bit better place um, mm. and have a sustainable business. And you know, human health is terribly important in that. We should never undersell it. So that tough stand strengthens our relationship with our customers, I would say. That's terrific. Well, I guess, you know, Terry, we're here because we're speaking about the terrific event that is Beef Australia and Beef 21 is well and truly on its way. You've been involved with every beef, I understand, since 1988. Is that true? <laughs> That's true. I'm showing my age now. Um, I didn't Jane, want to but, mention uh, the age. That I wasn't going to be that rude. But um, you would have don't seen some... the age thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in that event since you know the first marquee in a in a show ring all that time ago to the tremendous showcase that it is now? The, the, the other most dark reminder of me uh, for me, I mean, I, I've had a passion for judging cattle for many years and judged all the royal shows and things, and um, and I had some good mentors as a, as a young guy. Um, used to show cattle with people, he'd teach me things, and, 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 and Dad's been a mentor in a different way. And um, I had the honour of judging the prime cattle at Grace Mears Yard in 1988. And I was as nervous as crazy, you know, here's a young fellow, 26 years of age, and sort of getting into the big livestock buyers and, 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 and massive companies and everything. And here's a little butcher. Slaughter yard in Gympie being asked to judge cattle up there. And it was an eye opener for me. But you know what I remember most was the spiky horned cows and the bullocks with big horns on them. I can still see it as clearly as anything today. There was one black Brahmin cow, spiky horn, and she was jumping from pen to pen across oh, the goodness. old wooden yards at, um, at Gracemere. And um, of course, go to the last Gracemere prime cattle. Beautiful, cold, dehorned cattle. There's no bruising from the horns. Um, there's no scar marks up the sides of the cattle. Um, their, top, their strong stance on, on presentation has been amazing for industry. You hardly even find a wild animal in there. The way the producers have culled for temperament and improved that. The way the producers have put more meat on the carcasses. You know, there used to be a, a class of full-mouth cows you go there in recent years and you've got 2,000 cattle and they're all milk and tutu. Mm. It's just amazing that the, the progress you can see in virtually you know, 20 or 30 years. And, and, and that if you go year on year, you don't notice it. But if you see it from 1988 um, and go through to 2021, you think, holy hell, we've come light years. I would have never dreamed we could get cattle so well presented, such growth rates. Know, um, I, I was talking to a guy about it one day, and uh, he said, you know what New Zealand does? At their weekly cattle sales, they sell all the horned cattle last. So all the dehorned and pole cattle go up first, go through the auction, and then if you need to um, 
top up your trucks, you've got to buy a few horned cattle, put in the load, and then you've got to think to yourself, do I really need those cattle that bad that they're going to bruise the rest of the mob? So, you know, the, the leadership that Steve showed in strong conditions of entry really set the benchmark for a better industry. And this, and if I'm not boring you, the one other thing I'd like no, to No, you're not about, boring me. I, I'm actually quite enjoying it. Yes, keep going. <laughs> yeah. The, the one other thing I'd like to talk about, you could not sink your teeth into a steak anywhere around the grounds in 88. You'd buy a, um, a steak burger. Honestly, you'd have to put your, your heel on the on the steak oh. and you'd put it, tear it apart like a... Yep. Like a Lion putting it at a dead carcass. Yes, it's terrible. very visual, it definitely, was, Terry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was as tough as tough. And then it's like a hitch in the face and splash onion down your clean shirt or your tie. I feel like this uh, is a very was, personal experience from you. For you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was ridiculous. And um, as part of the meat industry strategic plan, they wanted to improve meat inequality. Um, Beef 88 imprinted that on my mind like you wouldn't believe. The meat was woeful. And is this what played into the start of MSA? Absolutely. Then yeah. In 1996, um, through what was then NMA, now the Australian Ministry Council, they were looking for representatives to go on the steering committee of MSA. Well, I jumped to my feet. I want to be part of that because um, we can't be giving consumers substandard product and chart and expect to get... And product. sorry, just to be clear, MSA is Meat Standards Australia too, isn't it? Yes, Meat Standards Australia. Yep. And so I was very fortunate to be involved with some, some wonderful people in that early days, with you know, David Crombie and you know, Phil, Mor- Phil Morley was at Woolworths at the time. I remember one meeting quite distinctly. He said, we've got a table full of people here. Who's the consumer rep? And we didn't have a consumer rep on our steering committee. And Phil Morley said, um, at Woolworths, we have what we call the empty chair. And so we went and unstacked the chair from a pile of chairs in the corner, sat at the end of the table. Any decision that we're split on as an industry, because there was you know, lot of feeders and grass-fed beef producers and processors and retailers there, any industry issue that we can't decide, we're going to refer it to the empty chair. And so that honed our focus of where we wanted to go. And... Um, the empty chair became famous in the in the think of MSA, but MSA became famous, I think, because of the change has brought about industry, and it's never been as clearly reflected as the for the ninety eight version, sorry, the eighty eight version to the um, oh, yeah, the early two thousand versions. I think MSA was rolled out at ninety seven on a pilot in Brisbane. Became common. Um, Knowledge by the early 2000s. I think it was about 2011. Woolworths picked up a major retailer user. So, once again, there's one of those good ideas that takes 15 years to come to fruition, a bit like the NLIS and a bit like the inspection. So, yeah, we've got to try and shorten that 15 year lag yeah. from, con- from concept to implementation. But with MSA, it's still not terribly, like, there's the understanding of what it is and there's, of course, quite a large number of producers that are involved. From your point of view, is the uptake where you would want it to be? Absolutely. I think it's fantastic. Um, And what we don't want to see is um, MSA out there as a brand. What we want is the um, information, the technology that brand owners can incorporate in their brand. If I can have a little plug, 
Yep. We have a brand called Private Selection. We think our private selection meat is fantastic. Um, consumers love it. Um, it sets different parameters. A lot of people put a lot of heavy emphasis on marbling. We don't put any emphasis on marbling because Australian consumers don't buy it. And this is only my personal view, but if I had a marble score six steak on a burger, you know, a 350 grand burger or something, steak on a burger, I wouldn't like it. It would make my lips too oily. You'd feel the fat. It almost, there's too much fat in it. People say it's healthy fat. I get that. And I know that the Japanese love it, but they like it thin sliced in shabu shabu style or a yakiniku style. They like a big chunk on a piece of between bread. I'm still an old Aussie that likes a, a, a burger with a steak on it, and I don't care if there's no salad or onions or sauce, as long as it's a nice young piece of beef and um, not too fatty. Um, I'm a bit a large guy myself. I don't need any more kilos on me. <laughs> and uh, so, um, I, I mean, listen, we process cattle here, and we've, we've had 200-day cattle on feed, and processed here for orders and I've taken meat home from that. And my wife even said, Terry, I don't like the amount of fat in this thing. Can you get something leaner? <laughs> and I'm a bit like that too. Yeah. So, well, you've been a big advocate for, for weight for age, aren't you? You're, absolutely. You know, you, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you see that playing out? Are, are more and more people... Well, that comes into a... Yeah, that comes into an efficiency argument. Yeah. Um, I'm not a greedy. I'm a moderate. But I want to... Um, how would you say, run a sustainable business. I think we're stewards of the land. I'm happy to have a fast-growing young calf weaned off a cow at, say, um, 300 kilos or you know, 250 to 400 kilos, and you do get those weights lively off a cow. Put them in the feedlot on a rising plane of nutrition. They don't stand in the paddock for their woody and virtually wean themselves in the paddock, but wean them early if you have to. Have a rising plane of nutrition. And if you feed those cattle for another 70, even 100 days, young cattle grow rather than grow fat. That's, we're in the meat industry, we're not in the fat industry. And um, so grow them quickly and process them at a young age. I think we should only process milk-toothed cattle. Um, we process milk and two-toothed cattle, but we're forever trying to bring the age down. And um, I think it, it's kind to the planet. They're younger age. They're not consuming the amount of grain. They're not walking the paddocks. They're, um, they're cattle in a feedlot uh, situation. Don't make the same sort of methane as they do in a in a, uh, a grass feed situation. So I'd like to see a lot of breeding cows out in the paddocks, and a lot of you know, there's a cost there. We know they're going to emit um, um, carbon gases, mm-hmm. and uh, but I still get the progeny off early. Keep them growing fast in the most sustainable system. Give the consumers most importantly pleasurable and predictable experience every time the meat even cooks faster so you've this this is a wonderful sales pitch like you've got are your customers taking you up on this point of view have you have you seen your export customers come around to that absolutely yeah. we've seen an increase in that younger meat in japan I, yeah. i'm not sure what's going to happen going forward as the older japanese population retire mm-hmm. do we see the Next generators or the, or the next generation of people coming through, do we see them favouring the, the traditional shabu shabu, you know, marble score nine sort of things, or do they move to more westernised culture, a bit faster food, a bit more steak restaurant? I don't know. Cuisine went around the world will change, but even if you go to Indonesia and there's a lot of live cattle going, I've had the benefit of going through a lot of networks there. They trim all the fat off, have these beautiful fat steers. 
and they trim all the fat off the outside of the carcasses before they present them to sale. You think, see, that's a waste, you know. And um, so I, I think as we move forward, we need to be thinking about what do our really, consumers really want. Certainly in the 70s and 80s, no other grazing system, they wanted fat and marbling as a guaranteed quality. I think MSA has done that. Um, we don't need the same degree of fat and marbling. And if people want to go and pick up a marble or seven or eight, good, good on them. They can do that and they can pay the $100 a kilo. But if they want to go and pick up a beautiful bit of prime yearly MSA graded um, you know, four-star product and they can do it for $30 a kilo, I think more and more people will head to the middle of the road uh, popular product. And um, I think in doing that, they're being kinder to the planet. Uh, I think they're being kinder to the cattle. Oh, well, look, yeah, well, look, my, I've got a brother-in-law that currently living in Japan and was, he was supposed to come home for um, my mother-in-law's birthday in April and obviously that got shut down and I, I think he was almost in tears to my husband just saying, oh, I just want a steak. I just want a steak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're trying to figure Haven't out how we can that. vacuum pack one over to Japan for him. Yeah, no, we can do that. <laughs> um, interestingly, you know, um, when some of the Koreans, especially, they like to have a few drinks with us, and um, uh, when they come and visit, um, they like to go to people's houses, and I've got a really humble abode, and I have a bit of a rough old barbecue out the back, and I'll take some of the Korean people back there, and how do you eat this? And we don't have many sauces, it's just a lump of meat on a burger, it's really simple, mm. I can do it, it doesn't put my wife out, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we get a, a, a good Aussie beer, and a steak, and a burger. Amazing. This thing is amazing. This is amazing, you know. And um, it's a different, they, they haven't experienced that sort of easy culture, easy lifestyle. Mm. And we sit at the back and just have, you know, simple as best. Chew the, chew the fat without having the fat. <laughs> That's a great way to be. Well, look, while we're talking about that, when you are cooking at home, just a family mm. dinner, I don't want you showing off at a dinner party or anything. What is your go to cut if you're just having, what, what, do, you, what do you really love to cook? At home, family family dinner. Um, I don't, don't cook the fam- I, I don't cook the family dinner. I'm a nuisance in the kitchen. Okay, we, our kitchen is just not big enough for Jan and I. <laughs> um, she chases me out. Um, she does a beautiful blade roast mm-hmm. in an oven bag, and or she even does a knuckle. Not many people use a, a round or, or a knuckle. A knuckle in an oven bag is tremendous. It's a very lean cut, has a bit of a gelatinous feel to it. Um, you've got to cook it in an oven bag or it will dry out. Mm. But, yeah, I love a blade or a knuckle in an oven bag. Um, that's the family dinner. It's Terry's domain out on the back patio, the barbecue. Oh, I'm a bit of a um, sucker for a rib on the bone. And I, can, <laughs> well, I, can do without the, I can do without the bread. And I just pick up the um, rib caveman style and, Oh, there is nothing better than that. Our kids, that's their favourite too. They, yeah. mum, when we do a killer at home, the kids will fight for the T-bone and mum will happily yeah. hand it over, but it's that meat on the bone. They love it. Absolutely. So while we're talking about carcasses, the um, the last few beefs, Nolan Meats has processed some of the beef carcass competition at the event. What do, What is involved in that? What's the significance? Carcass competition? should really be the pinnacle of our livestock production um, now that they incorporate MSA criteria. 
So you're getting the maximum yield, you know, the ages, you know, the weights, um, you know, the eating quality. And listen, I've um, judged many places and um, we think we know when the animal's alive, but it's not until you get that objective data, the actual area of the eye muscle, the amount of fat cover, the amount of marbling, you never really know until the hides off the machillas. So um, I think that the carcass competition, it's probably one of the most, um, what's, it, what's the word, secluded, or not everyone can go and see the judging, I understand that. But you can see the data on a piece of paper and you can analyse the data however you want to. And I think it is a, a, a tremendous initiative. And I think it was two beef events ago, they've gone from a, um, a it might be longer, it might be three, Anyway, they've gone from all the carcass being killed in an abattoir to have them done at your local abattoir. And there's been winners from WA and winners from Tassie and winners from Queensland and all over the country. And it's the MSA graders go round. Don't actually judge the carcasses, but the company graders judge the carcasses as normal MSA feedback is given. But the MSA employed person comes as a verification and um, it, it almost even leads to a co-regulatory model for, for eating quality, a, a co-regulatory model for, for food safety. If we've got to devolve more of our expensive government regulations across to industry, we can do it cheaper than government. Um, carcass competitions are the thin edge of the wedge in that and there's so much learning come out of it and I think that um, Beef Australia needs to be congratulated on the way they've instigated the very first national, truly national carcass competition. And the work of that committee has just been fantastic. So, yeah, there's so many highlights of that beef, and um, that doesn't even get to, to the social highlights or the networking highlights, but it's just a wonderful event. And, yeah. Australian beef producers, do you feel like they're taking on some of the information and technology available and making full use of it. We've seen, you know, the rise of MSA, um, the NLIS, but that sort of data systems behind that. Um, and uh, what was the other one that I was... Oh, EBVs. Um, you know, there's so, yep. there's so many different technologies and information and data that we can now, you know, really immerse into our management systems. Are producers taking them on board enough do, are we maximising their potential? Yes, I think they are. I'd like to have a bet on the racehorses occasionally. You might say, what's this got to do with beef? A little bit. Well, the horses don't run any faster than they did in 1850. Um, once you get the genetics to a certain level, you're at that level. It's fairly hard to improve. And of course, they've been bred in thoroughbred lines since 1600 with one measure i.e. the wooding post, they're not getting much faster. Um, where the increase in speed comes from is the better nutrition, the better exercise, the better recovery, the you know, water walkers, um, the, the, the hoof fillers, the, the padding in shoes, the, the uh, hydrotherapy, the, all the little things you do on the side, people do to extract that extra ounce of performance out of a racehorse in a very um, pristine environment. Tweak with the feed, tweak with that. Put blinkers on, take blinkers off. Um, all designed to get past that winning pace first. Genetics has played a big part. They're improving all the time. But 
sometimes the southern genetics doesn't work in the north and the northern genetics don't work in the south. You've got to do what's best for your environment first. Up. Put the very best genetics into your herd that you can um, afford and can manage. And there's a question of affordability. The very best you can buy. But reserve your biggest bend for nutrition. Better watering plants, medicated waters, uh, reducing calving times, increasing fertility, early weddings when things get dry. I'm no expert in beef production, but I've got this view that when you're at a certain level and you're operating in the top 5% of your industry, your only advance comes in um, things away from the genetics, you know, in, 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 in the racing game, the training method and the travel and the education and the, and the nutrition. In our industry, points to water, fertility. Um, you know, I don't know how many people are out there that you know, skin and test their bulls every year before they go out. Should be mandatory. Why would you put a bull in the paddock and not know mm. if he's fertile that year? He, he, he's had three day sickness last year. He's no longer fertile or something. All these little bits on the side, these husbandry accidents, husbanding nutrition, in my view, are possibly a bigger gain for most producers than genetics. And I leave out of that the um, genetically modified type or genomics. I guess this might be a more accurate word. Mm-hmm. The genomics advances. So I think. There's not one producer that'll attend beef that can't go home and have a bruise-free head bale or a self-closing gate or improve the safety, health and safety of the people working the cattle or to um, get a, um, you know, an extra 1% out of the performance of the herd by reducing watering points from 15 kilometres to, to 2 kilometres. You know, I'm a great believer in... Uh, Holistic management, moving your cattle, you know, high density stocking, uh, moving your cattle regularly, uh, less use of pesticides, um, all those sorts of things. I just think there's so much opportunity there to be harnessed, and beef is a wonderful uh, forum to try and um, exchange ideas and harness those opportunities. Well, that is a terrific many gems of wisdom there to, to finish up on, Terry. I think, you know, for this, for all essential purposes, where will we find you at Beef 21? What's going to be your go-to event that you're looking forward to? I love the all-breeds, the interbreed competition. Mm-hmm. I like the uh, forums. Um, I love going to Gracebury and seeing the problem cattle. I love the social aspects. I could be at a bar somewhere. I love the dinners. Um Hey, I'm a beefaholic. Um, yeah. I, I just think it's great. Oh, I don't have a single best event. I mean, the beauty of beef is that it's an event for everybody. There's something there for everyone. And if you're passionate, there's a hundred things there for you. I was going to say, you spoilt for choice. Okay, well, thank you very much, Terry Nolan, for your time, and we will see you at Beef. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.